Chapters 4 and 5 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beast, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter 4 A Fisherman. One day during the hunt, I approached the bank of the river and noticed many very large fish with red backs as though filled with blood. They were swimming on the surface, enjoying the rays of the sun. When the river was entirely free from ice, these fish appeared in enormous quantities. Soon I realized that they were working upstream for the spawning season in the smaller rivers. I thought to use a plundering method of catching, forbidden by the law of all countries, but all the lawyers and legislators should be lenient to one who lives in a den under the roots of a fallen tree, and dares to break their rational laws. Gathering many thin birch and aspen trees, I built in the bed of the stream a weir, which the fish could not pass, and soon I found them trying to jump over it. Near the bank I left a hole in my barrier about eighteen inches below the surface, and fastened on the upstream side a high basket plated from soft willow twigs, into which the fish came as they passed the hole. Then I stood cruelly by and hit them on the head with a strong stick. All my catch were over thirty pounds, some more than eighty. This variety of fish is called the taimon, is of the trout family, and is the best in the Ennesai. After two weeks the fish had passed, and my basket gave me no more treasure, so I began anew the hunt. CHAPTER V A DANGEROUS NEIGHBOR the hunt became more and more profitable and enjoyable, as spring animated everything. In the morning, at the break of day, the forest was full of voices, strange and undiscernible to the inhabitant of the town. There the heathcock clucked, and sang his song of love, as he sat on the top branches of the cedar and admired the grey hen scratching in the fallen leaves below. It was very easy to approach this full-feathered Caruso, and with a shot to bring him down from his more poetic to his more utilitarian duties. His going out was an euthanasia, for he was in love and heard nothing. Out in the clearing the blackcocks with their widespread spotted tails were fighting, while the hens strutting near, craning and chattering, probably some gossip about their fighting swains, watched and were delighted with them. From the distance flowed in a stern and deep roar, yet full of tenderness and love, the mating call of the deer. While from the crags above came down the short and broken voice of the mountain buck. Among the bushes frolicked the hares, and often near them a red fox lay flattened to the ground watching his chance. I never heard any wolves, and they are usually not found in the Siberian regions covered with mountains and forest. But there was another beast, who was my neighbour, and one of us had to go away. One day, coming back from the hunt with a big heathcock, I suddenly noticed among the trees a black moving mass. I stopped and, looking very attentively, saw a bear digging away at an anthill. Smelling me, he snorted violently, and very quickly shuffled away, astonishing me with the speed of his clumsy gait. The following morning, while still lying under my overcoat, I was attracted by a noise behind my den. I peered out very carefully, and discovered the bear. He 
he stood on his hind legs and was noisily sniffing, investigating the question as to what living creature had adopted the custom of the bears of housing during the winter under the trunks of fallen trees. I shouted and struck my kettle with the axe. My early visitor made off with all his energy, but his visit did not please me. It was very early in the spring that this occurred, and the bear should not yet have left his hibernating place. He was the so-called ant-eater, an abnormal type of bear lacking in all the etiquette of the first families of the bear clan. I knew that the ant-eaters were very irritable and audacious, and quickly I prepared myself for both the defence and the charge. My preparations were short. I rubbed off the ends of five of my cartridges, thus making dum-dums out of them, a sufficiently intelligible argument for so unwelcome a guest. Putting on my coat, I went to the place where I had first met the bear, and where there were many ant-hills. I made a detour of the whole mountain, looked in all the ravines, but nowhere found my caller. Disappointed and tired, I was approaching my shelter quite off my guard, when I suddenly discovered the king of the forest himself, just coming out of my lowly dwelling, and sniffing all around the entrance to it. I shot. The bullet pierced his side. He roared with pain and anger, and stood up on his hind legs. As the second bullet broke one of these, he squatted down, but immediately, dragging the leg and endeavouring to stand upright, moved to attack me. Only the third bullet in his breast stopped him. He weighed about two hundred to two hundred fifty pounds, as near as I could guess, and was very tasty. He appeared at his best in cutlets, but only a little less wonderful in the Hamburg steaks which I rolled and roasted on hot stones, watching them swell out into great balls that were as light as the finest souffle omelettes we used to have at the Medved in Petrograd. On this welcome addition to my larder I lived from then until the ground dried out, and the stream ran down enough so that I could travel down along the river to the country whither Ivan had directed me. Ever travelling with the greatest precautions, I made the journey down along the river on foot, carrying from my winter quarters all my household furniture and goods, wrapped up in the deerskin bag which I formed by tying the legs together in an awkward knot, and thus laden, fording the small streams and wading through the swamps that lay across my path. After fifty-odd miles of this, I came to the country called Sivkova, where I found the cabin of a peasant named Tropov, located closest to the forest that came to be my natural environment. With him I lived for a time. Now in these unimaginable surroundings of safety and peace, summing up the total of my experience in the Siberian taiga, I make the following deductions. In every healthy spiritual individual of our times, occasions of necessity resurrect the traits of primitive man, hunter, and warrior, and help him in the struggle with nature. It is the prerogative of the man with the trained mind and spirit over the untrained, who does not possess sufficient science and will-power to carry him through. But the price that the cultured man must pay is that for him there exists nothing more awful than absolute solitude, and the knowledge of complete isolation from human society, and the life of moral and aesthetic culture. One step, one moment of weakness and dark madness will seize a man, and carry him to inevitable destruction. I spent awful days of struggle with the cold and hunger, but I passed more terrible days 
in the struggle of the will to kill weakening destructive thoughts. The memories of these days freeze my heart and mind, and even now, as I revive them so clearly by writing of my experiences, they throw me back into a state of fear and apprehension. Moreover, I am compelled to observe that the people in highly civilized states give too little regard to the training that is useful to a man in primitive conditions, in conditions incident to the struggle against nature for existence. It is the single normal way to develop a new generation of strong, healthy, iron men, with at the same time sensitive souls. Nature destroys the weak, but helps the strong, awakening in the soul emotions which remain dormant under the urban conditions of modern life. End of chapter.